also say good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, we'll be in Luke chapter 16, primarily give our attention to verses 19 through 31. Glad you're here. Uh, I was I made comment of this in the first service. I was really impressed with that video, uh, but I was distracted by the product placement of the coffee mug there on the table because um, it's sharp. I, I don't drink coffee, so I don't really want one, but I'm sure that could hold some hot queso or something, and maybe I could use that. But uh, it is a joy to, to be here to open God's Word. We're continuing our series, our summer series, looking at the parables and thinking about what loves Christians should have. And this morning we're looking at the parable called The Rich Man and Lazarus. Now, storytelling is a wonderful device that has a way of, of teaching us and informing us, even confronting us in ways that sometimes just straightforward preaching or teaching or even rebuke cannot accomplish. You just think about the prophet Nathan. This is how he confronts the king David with this story about a little lamb. And that's what I want from this series. And in particular, the text we're looking at this morning, I'm praying because of the use of story, the use of parable, that it will lower our defenses so that we can see what Jesus is really trying to tell us in this text. Because I have a suspicion that some of us will be caught off guard by what is said here uh, in this particular story. And that's because it's a weighty text. As I've restudied it this week, uh, part of me has wondered, like, why did you pick this parable out of the number that you could? Um, but it is weighty, but even though it's weighty, there's much to learn in this story. Our Lord is going to hit on some very important topics. He's going to hit on topics like money. He's going to hit on things like, what are the sort of things that you identify with in this life? And, and more importantly than that, Jesus is going to talk about matters of eternity and how we can have confidence about eternity. So I'm going to read the text. I'm going to read the, this, this weighty text, and then I'm going to beg God to help us that we would, again, lower our defenses so this morning we would be changed and sanctified uh, by his word. So let's read Luke chapter 16. I'm actually going to start in verse 14. Uh, well, maybe the end of verse 13 to set some of the context. A doctor named Luke, our brother, writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, verse 19, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your life received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. 
And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Father, now as we give our attention to your word, Father, I do ask that you would help us this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word, a word that you tell us very clearly is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus and a word that is able to train and instruct us in righteousness. So, Father, would you help me now to preach with confidence in your word for the good of your saints, for the sake of the lost, and for the glory of your name. Father, now would you do a thousand miracles among us, miracles of salvation and miracles of sanctification. Father, now would you please sanctify us in the truth. We know your word is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, humor-like storytelling also has a way of lowering our defenses so that we can hear something in a fresh way. Years ago, I, I heard a comedian, he was just speaking into his phone, he was just recording it for social media, and he said something that really made me think, it also made me laugh, but I think it's something that could possibly offend some. Here, here's what he said. He started by asking, and he's just looking at his camera, he just says, can we just all collectively agree to be done with books about heaven and kids coming uh, about kids that go to heaven and then come back he said i feel like people are going to be mad at me about this but just hear me out i'm just saying you don't normally believe a 10 year old child when he tells you a story like of literally anything i mean of course he thinks heaven is for real but he also thinks that pokemon is for real i think he's right we usually are skeptical about anything young children say because they can say strange and hilarious things my nephew Judson, who was the ring bearer in our wedding, he invited Jesus to his birthday party, which is sweet and is cute, but he also invited Darth Vader. Children have wonderful imaginations and stories, but these should hardly be authorities for us, and yet these sort of books are selling by the millions to Christians. And I've heard many a Christian say things like, I love this book or I love that book because it often strengthens my faith. And I, I find that troubling because of what Jesus is saying here, not to mention that at least two other places in the scriptures tell us very clearly that no one saved Jesus has ever gone up to heaven and come back down. David Platt, a pastor in D.C., unfortunately reminds us there's a lot of money to be made peddling fiction about the, under, about the afterlife as nonfiction in Christian bookstores. Now, again, I, the reason I share that is because I feel the weight of this passage. My intention is not to offend, but my, I feel very burdened by what I believe this parable is telling us is at stake this morning. And as I've revisited this story and I've thought about the issues that this text are addressing, in, in many ways, I've just been broken by what I've studied. The truth is heaven is for real. Hell is for real. 
The choices we make in this life determine which one we will experience forever. But brothers and sisters, we have something so much more sure than the testimony of a 10-year-old. We have the Spirit-inspired Word of God, which will never fade. And in that Spirit-inspired Word, we have this story from Jesus himself. When I was in middle school, shortly after Kurt Cobain died, the lead singer of Nirvana, one of my favorite preachers was in town. There was this, this revival, this youth revival that was attended by many of my unbelieving friends. And he preached this text that I'm about to preach. I've never forgotten it. Particularly because there's a lot of unbelieving friends there that I was hoping would hear the gospel. But he shared a poem entitled, Five Minutes After I Die. And right before he shared that poem, he said, I know two things for certain tonight. He said, the first one is this, that everybody in this room will die. And the second one is this, all of us will spend eternity somewhere. And then he read this poem. It goes like this. Loved ones will weep over my silent face. Dear ones will clasp me in sad embrace. Shadows and darkness will fill this place. Five minutes after I die. Faces that sorrow I will not see. Voices that murmur will not reach me. But where, oh where, will my soul be? Five minutes after I die. Never to change the good I lack. Fixed to the goal of my chosen track. No room to repent, no turning back. Five minutes after I die. Made it forever with my chosen throng. Long is eternity. Oh, so long. So woe is me if my soul be wrong. Five minutes after I die. That poem hits at what I believe is at stake in the story that Jesus is telling us this morning. Now, here's the context of where this parable is situated in the Gospel of Luke. I tried to read some of it. It's important for us to know where these stories are fitted in, in the context of the larger Gospel narrative. The point of that is that these are not history or nonfiction. They are, they are to be understood as stories in their context. And here's the context of the chapter. Jesus is hammering home the idea that you cannot serve two masters. More specifically, he is hammering home what I read you cannot serve both God and money. And now Jesus turns to a story to illustrate that very point. He's addressing the Pharisees here, the, the, these people, this, these leaders who love their money and who believe that their money, their status, and their heritage prove that they were blessed by God. And Jesus comes in with a story about a dependent poor man and a callous, seemingly blessed rich man that destroys that way of thinking for the Pharisees, but hopefully destroys that way of thinking for us. So I think we're going to see five lessons from Luke chapter 16 this morning. And the first one is this, just straightforward. We cannot serve both God and money. Here's what the text says. Look at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. We're introduced to the two main characters in this parable, an unnamed man who's a rich man and then Lazarus. The rich man is dressed in fine clothes, purple and fine linen. He is feasting extravagantly. Purple is a sign of wealth in that culture. I don't understand. I've never understood the first century obsession with well uh, with with purple, but that's because I grew up watching Barney the dinosaur. 
But this rich man has it all, it seems, and yet in front of his massive house at his luxurious gate is a beggar who is living in abject poverty. He is not covered in fine clothes. He is covered in sores. He is, he is not feasting. He is longing for the crumbs that the story does not indicate he ever receives from this rich man's table. And in his suffering, his only companions seem to be these dogs that come to lick him. The only saving grace seems to be to me that at least they aren't cats. And people get offended by that. It's okay. Amen. Thank you. The only amen I got today was a joke about cats. Just remember that. What we're going to see is Jesus is highlighting here the abuse of riches contrasted with the condition of this man named Lazarus. The rich man shows utter disregard for his neighbor made in God's image who lives in the shadow of his self-indulgence. Now, it's important to know Jesus is not saying rich equals bad and poor equals good. In fact, Abraham, who is highlighted here in the story, was a wealthy man. Instead, he is highlighting the attitude one has towards material possessions and how we then use them in respect of loving neighbor. Interestingly, Lazarus is the man named in this text while the rich man is not. And that is significant because it is the only time in a parable that Jesus gives a character a name. And it's important because of what the name means. Lazarus means God helps. Now, to our way of thinking, wouldn't it seem as though God is helping the rich man? I mean, after all, he has all of these fine things. He has these nice clothes. He has great food. But we who understand that there are always spiritual things at play understand that not all things are as they seem to the human eye. And that is why we must learn this morning, we cannot serve both God and money. And now Jesus will show us why, which leads to the second lesson, and that's this. In death and in judgment, uh, death and judgment await us all regardless of our status in this life. Look what it says, verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Both men, as it will be with all of us, eventually die, and upon their death, they either enter into eternal joy and pleasure, that is heaven or signified here as Abraham's side, or we enter into eternal suffering, that is hell or what is called here Hades, the place of the dead. And your status, right? So things like money or even things or possibly even your, your, your name, your family's name, those sort of things, your status in this life does not determine where you end up. Here at the end, their roles are completely reversed. In this life, the rich man had it all and Lazarus had suffering. But in the next, Lazarus has it all and the rich man has suffering and all of the benefits, all that he gained in this life were of no value and of no worth in the life to come. Now, again, I've hinted at this already. It's important to note one does not go to heaven because they are poor. Among the poor, there are the faithful and the unfaithful. This isn't salvation by grace alone through poverty alone. Nor does one go to hell because they are rich. As we will see, there is still a chance for his rich brothers. It is just as true among the rich as it is the poor. There are the faithful and the unfaithful. But it's clear in this text that he went to hell because he never repents of his sin. That's why he'll be longing later for his brothers to repent. He never repented of his sinful self-indulgence. 
we're going to see that even in hell, he is still obsessed with himself. This has already been detailed for his lack of concern for those who he saw daily who were in need of the very help that he could provide. Repentance for his brothers, repentance for him, repentance for us, is not just asking for forgiveness, it's turning from our sin. For him, it would be turning from sinful neglect. But on the other hand, one is not saved by generosity either. Rather, what Jesus is teaching, Paul will teach later on to the church at Corinth, is simply this, generosity with your wealth indicates you understand what you have received in the gospel. It highlights that you serve God rather than serve money. And yet the converse is actually true as well. A lack of generosity may reveal that we do not understand what has been given to us in the gospel, that we do not understand all that we have received in the blessings of Christ, and that perhaps something like money rather than God is actually our master. That's what's going on here. Here's how a pastor from the 1800s in Scotland, a guy named Robert Murray McShane, talks about talks about this. Here's what he says. To give largely and not grudging at all requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. And then listen to this, my friends. Enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly. For I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. Sadly, the rich man's careless indifference to the needs of others, his self-indulgence in his earthly blessings lead to an absence of blessing in the life to come. And yet the reverse, Lazarus's reliance upon God, again, the indication by with the, what his name means, that God helps, indicates he relied on God rather than money, and so it must be with us. So an important question this morning to think through is, do we love God or money more? Hear me, brothers and sisters, the answer is so often, it's so easy. For somebody said, do you love God or money more? It would be easy for me to say yes. But the true answer to that question is revealed in the lines on my bank statement. Jesus is emphasizing whether you are generous to the less fortunate reveals if you truly understand and believe and have been changed by the gospel you have received. Again, as I said two weeks ago, this is not salvation by works, but simply Jesus highlighting a gospel-changed heart that is saved by faith alone, but is not saved by faith that is alone. And that leads to the third lesson from Jesus that we can learn from this passage. We learn that the things we identify with, so like the things that we love and treasure and cherish, the things that we identify with in this life might be the very things blinding us to our need for repentance and grace. Here, the rich man and, and the Pharisees as well, they believe it's their wealth and their ethnic status. It makes them acceptable to God. It shows that they must be blessed by God. For us, it could be wealth. It could be status. It could be job. It could be citizenship. It could even be our family name. It could be the very things blinding us and keeping us from living the life that Christ would have us to live. And yet the irony is, if you just think about it, take a step back and think about this. The irony is, in our fallen and sinful state, almost all of us reckon we are worthy of heaven. 
because we're able to say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. At least I don't live like that person. And so in our minds, we are good and worthy of heaven as compared to somebody else. And that's why Jonathan Edwards would warn of this in The Great, Great Awakening. Here's what he says, and it's, it's quite confronting. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape. And as we think about gospel works, or as we think about a gospel by faith alone rather than works, he says this, he depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done and what he is now doing and what he intends to do. To even think about this from a different angle, there may be some in this room who have never dealt with the gospel, never dealt with Christ. And they keep saying, like, I will deal with this later. Things you intend to do later in life and what you don't know is that this very day God may require your life of you. Every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. This leads to a fourth and very important lesson. You see this in verses 24 through 26. We see that Jesus believes in a real heaven and a real hell, and he believes in the eternality of them both. Look at verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Ironically, this merciless rich man now cries out for mercy. He doesn't cry out for repentance, as we will see, but he cries out for mercy from God on a day when it is too late. He cries to be spared from this anguish, to be spared from the torment of hell. And it's so bad. Again, notice the irony of the text. He who in this life would never help Lazarus wants Lazarus now to help him. He who would not even give the scraps or the crumbs of his table to Lazarus now wants Lazarus to bring him just a drop, or you might say just a crumb of water to him, and yet the reversal is complete. As there were no scraps in this life for Lazarus, there's no drop of water for the rich man in the next. The rich man has gone to feasting at his own table to desperation for just one drop of water. Everything has been flipped upside down. There's so much going on here in the text, but we see this, that even in hell, this rich man wants to order people around. Make Lazarus to be my servant and to bring me some water. Which also reveals something to us that's very damning. The rich man knew who Lazarus was. The rich man recognizes him. He even knows his name. which makes his disregard of him in the former life all the more clear. The rich man then addresses Abraham. He calls him father. He's likely hoping his heritage will get him out of this suffering and this fate. It just reveals to us that even in hell, he is still self-absorbed. Even in hell, he will not repent. Even in hell, he sees Lazarus as a thing to be used for his own comfort. Even in hell, he will not give up relying on his self-importance and status. Brothers and sisters and, and guests who are here with us this morning, one of the main things the parable, parables are often trying to do is, is simply to help us understand that we are not the main character in every story. That goes against our way of thinking. We we all see ourselves as the main character in these stories. Lazarus is just a bit character to this man. 
He thinks it's all about him. He thinks he is the one to be served rather than to serve. Now, we don't only just learn things about the rich man's self-obsession. We also learn some things about hell here. We learn that hell is a place where you finally realize that you need help. And yet it's too late. Hell is a place of unbelievable, both physical, but also mental anguish as you realize now what you have lost and lost forever. One theologian from years gone by says it like this, and it's, again, quite a striking quote. The torments of hell will not in one part only, but in every part, not in weaker degree, but in the greatest extremity, not for a day, not for a month, not for a year, but forever. The wicked will always be dying, yet never dead. If they could die, they would think themselves happy. They will never breathe out their last, always burning in those flames and never consumed. And then listen to this, the eternity of hell will be the hell of hell. And we see here in this story that even in hell, sinners do not repent. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says in the end, there are only going to be two kinds of people. There are going to be those who joyfully say to God, Thy will be done. And there are those who in judgment God will look at and say, Finally, no, your will be done. Revelation pictures it like this, Let the one who is filthy be filthy still. Think about the judgment of that. But Jesus continues the story, verse 25. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your life received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. He reminds him, You received your good things, implying you staked your life on these things, and look what it got you. Jesus is driving home to the hearers that this rich man's lack of compassion on earth has given way to a lack of compassion for him in the life to come. After all, Jesus will say in another place, blessed are the merciful for those are the ones who will receive mercy. Consider the trade-off this morning, brothers and sisters, friends that are here. Think about what is our response to a text like this? And it's what our response is almost every single week. It's the most important and simple response to every text we could have. It's to believe the gospel. Ponder the trade-off here. The place that we are headed, if we are in Christ, is a place of eternal joy and rest and glory. And so think about it like this. 75 years of pain will be as nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. And yet again, think about the opposite of that. Comparatively, what is 75 years of lavish riches stacked up to an eternity of suffering? It is so true that we will reap what we sow. So are we sowing compassion and generosity in light of eternity? Are we who have been shown compassion and mercy in the gospel the very ones who in turn are showing compassion and mercy? Abraham continues to speak. He says, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. 
This is so important. One of the reasons why I'm so burdened by this text. Jesus clearly believes in a real heaven and a real hell. No, what, no matter what some former pastors, former theologians want to write. There's this great chasm between the two, meaning your fate, once you pass from this life to the next, is sealed. There is no mulligan. There is no do-over. There is no in-between. It is appointed once for man to die, and then comes the judgment. So what will you enter into upon your death? And that gives way to the final lesson we learn in the text. And it's an important one because that lesson contains good news. God has not left us to wonder how we can know about the life to come. If you're here and you're just sort of checking out Open Door, we unashamedly just preach through the Bible. Normally it's a book we're working our way through this, this summer, we're working through parables. You're not always going to hear specifically a sermon like I'm sharing right now. You will always hear about judgment, the gospel, but it may not be as in-depth as what I'm doing now. But the reason we preach through the Bible, the reason we would share texts like this is because we think that this is an act of love. To say very clearly, this is what the Bible says. Here's how you can know whether you have a good and right standing before God. And that gets to the fifth lesson. We learn that we must believe, love, and listen to the Scriptures because in them we find eternal life. Look at verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Many lessons to be learned in this story, but it culminates here. And it's a, it's a lesson I'm always trying to instill in my, in my daughter every night at the dinner table. I'm trying to help her understand that we must love the Scriptures because the Scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in our Lord, and they're able to sanctify us in the truth, to make us more and more like Him. If we're to enjoy the blessings that Lazarus does, if we're to avoid the agonies of the rich man, we must recognize and live under the authority of this Word. Again, in these verses, we see the lack of repentance of the rich man. Since Lazarus can't be his waiter, maybe Lazarus can be his errand boy and go to his family with a message. Now, it does reveal at least something to us. Finally, the rich man is showing concern about someone other than himself. Since he cannot improve his own condition, he's hopeful to improve the condition of his own family. He does not want them to make the same mistake he has. He does not want them to follow him to this awful place. Which is a reminder to us that hell is not a game. It be difficult for us to grasp that. We, we live in a culture that so often wants to, to trivialize or even minimize hell. We'll use that word hell like an intensifier for our feelings. I remember growing up watching a movie called Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, where Bill and Ted went to hell and it was pictured as this dark place where they played chess with this, with the Grim Reaper who was just pictured as this bumbling moron. Bet you didn't think you'd hear a Bill and Ted reference this morning. We live in a culture that trivializes hell. A couple years ago, my uncle, my, my mom's brother Daniel, he lived a wild life and suddenly, about two years ago, he died and it seems very likely to us he died apart from Christ. And if he could come back right now be from beyond the grave, he would plead with me and he would plead with you to not make the same mistakes he made. 
he would plead, do all that is necessary not to join me in this place. That is what this rich man is desperate for an opportunity to do, but now it's too late. He wants to tell his brothers to repent. If you allow me the privilege just to speak pastorally for just a moment, if I can. There are some Christians who are tempted to leave the faith because they are troubled by the doctrine of hell. And yet the sad irony is that you would be doing the very thing that people in hell would ask you not to do. If you had a loved one who could come back from beyond the grave, a loved one would implore you, persevere in the faith, cling to this word which brings understanding about these things. Many abandon the faith because they cannot stomach the doctrine of hell because they, they struggle with the authority of the word and some of the clear things the word teaches. But my uncle would beg you. He would beg unbelievers. He would beg teetering Christians. It would be the same plea I have for you this morning if you're here and don't follow Christ. Repent today. Turn from your sin and self-absorption today. Trust in Christ who has taken your place and taken your sin and taken your judgment at the cross. Trust in him and trust in him alone today for your future and follow him until he takes you home. Stake everything you are, not on money and the things that will pass away. Stake it on Christ. That is saving, receiving. This is not some get out of hell free card. Saving, receiving is embracing Jesus as Lord. It is understanding who he is and what he has done and realizing the greatest joy of heaven will not be the absence of pain that we will receive in hell. It will be the presence of our Savior, the presence of our Lord, the one who is the captain of our salvation. Jesus now continues the story through Abraham, telling us just how we can do that. And here's what he says, verse 29. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Abraham's response to this is amazing. He says, I will not send Lazarus, let them read their Bibles. God has already spoken to matters of life and death and eternity. He's already spoken to how we can be in a relationship with him. And he has done decisively so in the scriptures. So let them hear them. Jesus is saying, do you want confidence in future glory? Do you want confidence in future grace? It is in the Bible where we learn that repentance and faith in Christ as Lord is all it takes to seal our destiny at Abraham's side where we can be made righteous like the man of faith Abraham was made righteous by faith and by faith alone. Sadly, the rich man does not see this. Sadly, look at his response, verse 30. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Again, even in hell, he doesn't get it. Tragically, he seeks to correct Father Abraham. He refuses to recognize the authority and sufficiency of the scriptures, telling him, telling Abraham, God's word through God's servants is not enough. We need a miracle or a sign. And yet Abraham does not share his optimism. Final verse, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In a sense, Abraham doubles down. He says, even a miraculous act is not enough to produce faith. In fact, even if somebody comes back from the dead, it will not be enough. This tells us that empirical evidence is not what stops people from believing. Instead, it's an unbelieving heart that keeps people from God. And I, I think this is closer to us than we want to believe. How often have we thought something like, if they could just find Noah's Ark, if they could just find the Ark of the Covenant, I would really believe. 
And Jesus is saying here, no, you wouldn't, because if you don't believe the scriptures, even a sign will not convince you. Sadly, too often, we who say we are people of the book lack confidence in the book. Now, hear me this morning. I'm not saying at times we will not struggle. At times we will not need clarity about what the word says. But the response of our heart and the response of our head to the scripture should be one of love, should be one of delight, should be one of activity, should be one of trust, always seeking understanding. And then when we struggle, our prayer should simply be this, Lord, I believe, would you please help my unbelief? Certainly, it's a challenge for 21st century America that cannot stomach some of the things the Bible teaches, like hell. But it was a struggle for first century Israel as well. It has been a struggle for everybody since the beginning of time, since Satan said to our parents, did God really say? Did God really say don't eat from that tree? Did God really say treat your neighbor as you treat yourself? Did God really say that marriage is between one man and one woman? Did God really Mean it when he says there is only one way to be in a right relationship with him. Did God say, did God say, did God say, we have heard this throughout the centuries. We will continue to hear this until we see him face to face. My question this morning is, will we take God at his word or will we need further proof? This is a miracle. Jesus is saying, even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe it. And how do we know that is true? Because one did come back from the dead. His name means God helps. His name was Lazarus. John 11 tells us it did not make those, not to make everybody who saw that scene unfold, it did not make them believe in Jesus. In fact, it was the precipitating event that made them think how they could put him to death. And even more than that, this will turn out to be a prophecy. One telling this story, though without sin, will suffer the fate of the ungodly. He will suffer for self-indulgent people like me. Even though he was the most selfless person who ever lived, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. If you think about it like this, this one should be the main character in every single story, and yet he's the very one who was willing to become a servant, for he came to seek and save the lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve the hurting. He came to serve the helpless. He came to help us. Luther said on his dying, on his deathbed, he simply said this, we are beggars. It is true. And all you need to begin to think through a right relationship with God is that sort of attitude. God, I am a beggar. I have nothing of worth and value that I have not received from you. That is what salvation looks like. It is a desperate plea for God to give you something that you can never produce do on your own. He has done this for us climactically at the cross where he has made Christ who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then on that Sunday morning after he was dead for three days in the place of the dead, on that Sunday morning, the most amazing thing ever occurred. He would rise from the dead. He would vacate that tomb. All of history would turn at that moment 
and yet many still do not believe. The question is, do we, will we trust the scriptures that have revealed all of these things to us? Please hear me this morning. We have all we need in the Bible. And we have learned this as little children. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Jesus is Lord, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Jesus has been raised from the dead and has taken his rightful seat on the throne, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Heaven is for real, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. But that also means so is hell. And so I'm going to close returning to that poem five minutes after I die. Oh, what a fool. Hard word, but true. Passing the Savior with death in view. Doing a deed I can never undo. Five minutes after I die. If I am flinging a fortune away, if I am wasting salvation's day, just is my sentence, my soul shall say, five minutes after I die. But thanks be to Jesus for pardon free. He's paid my debt on Calvary's tree. So heaven's gates will open for me five minutes after I die. O marvelous grace that rescued me, O joyous moment when Jesus I see, O happy day when like him I'll be, five minutes after I die. God help you to consider your eternal state, but you must consider it now, because it'll be too late, five minutes after you die. Father, we thank you for your word that reveals these things to us. Father, thank you that you have not left us to guess how we can be in right relationship with you. Father, we thank you for this word that is certainly able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for those in this room that do not have a relationship with him, Father, that they would come this morning for the first time to repent of their sins, to stop trusting in themselves, and to start trusting in Him and Him alone for their future. Father, for those of us that have, Father, I pray this morning that we would love Your Word even more faithfully, that we would seek to be changed by it, and that, Father, because of a text like this, we would understand more clearly the urgency of our evangelism. Would You give us great favor in that work? Father, when we talk about going with the gospel, may we see the urgency of that. And now, Father, as we turn our attention to the Lord's table, Father, may we revel in what the Lord Jesus has done to make all of these things so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.